0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to ToledoCalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, we have been in a series called Sunday Drive. We've been looking at some key concepts in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today is uh, where we'll be today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Do Do you know anybody who who takes things too far. Do you know what I mean? It's like they, they, they make a joke, but then they take it too far. Or like they get, they get wound up about something, they get angry about something, and they, they, they start to respond. And then like there's a place where you're like, you should have stopped there, but you took it too far. Or maybe you know somebody who like physically, their, their, their practice their practice. Is they overexert themselves, like they they do more than is wise for them to do, and then afterwards they say, oh, "I think I took it too far." <laughs> we're going to talk today about a spiritual principle of how something can be taken too far, and we're going to look at this today from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter seven. In all honesty, like as, about a month ago, I, I suppose, as, as we were going through this passage of scripture, this 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 verse right here in Ecclesiastes chapter seven just really stuck with me, like, like puzzled me almost, like trying to, trying to figure it out, trying to work it out. And so, so much so that the last two times I preached I put this passage of scripture into the sermon notes. Like I was going to hit it in the sermon because it had so like resonated with me. I was like, I gotta talk about this. But then as I was preaching both times, it's not that I ever run out of time, but it was just that, it was like, man, it just doesn't fit, it's not right. But I kept coming back to this passage. So at our first Wednesday service a couple weeks ago, I taught on this for a little while and I said, look, I think at some point I'll probably come back to this passage of scripture because I just can't shake it. Well, today's the day. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 16. Solomon's writing here. And, and if you're not familiar with where we've been, Solomon was the king of Israel. He is known to be the wisest person who ever lived. And in his old age, he's writing wisdom back to those who are younger to help them know how to view and navigate life. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 16, he says this Do not be over righteous. Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. This passage just kind of gripped me, and actually, not the whole passage, one, one word in particular that I was really wrestling with, and it's the word "over-righteous." Like Solomon says, do not be Over-righteous. And the word intrigued me, and I started looking at other Bible translations. Like, how do other people translate this? Overly righteous, or excessively righteous, or do not think that you are too good. And as I was trying to figure it out, I was like, I needed a picture to kind of be able to categorize and understand this. And in order to do that, we kind of have to go back and we have to start with the idea of what righteousness is, so that when we can then come back and understand what over-righteousness is. So let's start with what righteous means. To be righteous is to be in right relationship with God. So to be righteous means that you are in right relationship with God, that your life is in line with his standards, that you are in a place where you are looking to him in your life and you are in right relationship with him. Easy to say that to be righteous is to be right with God. How does that happen? Well, it's not by anything you and I do. Titus chapter three, verse five says this, that God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's not your good works that made you righteous. It's God's mercy, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit's work in your life that changes us and that makes us new, that makes us righteous. That's why when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him being our Savior and our Lord, that we recognize that we can't do it on our own. And that we need someone to bring us forgiveness. We need someone to bring us life. And so he's our savior, the one who brings us forgiveness because of his death on the cross. And he's our Lord, which means the one who gives our life purpose and meaning because he was was resurrected from the dead. And so when we look at that, we know that we are made righteous, not by what I do, not by what you do, but because of what Jesus did for us. That's why we are righteous before God, because of his mercy. And as a result, we try to be more like Jesus. Like we go on, if you will, kind of a journey of righteousness in our lives. David, actually Solomon's father, who was also the king of Israel, describes that journey in this way. Psalm 24, verse three, he says, "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, "'and who shall stand in his holy place? "'He who has clean hands and a pure heart, "'who does not lift up his soul to what is false "'and does not swear deceitfully,' He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So now when David's writing this, in part he's thinking of a literal place. He's saying, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And in his time, as it is today, the temple complex in Jerusalem is, is something that you go up to. Jerusalem is a city in the hills. So when you get there, you go up into Jerusalem. And when you're there, then you go up to where the temple was. So when David says, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, he's speaking physically about the place where you would go to be in God's presence to worship, but he's also thinking figuratively about how you come to the Lord. He's using this metaphor here. And he says, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, those who are, he talks here about having clean hands and a pure heart, and he uses the word righteous, that those who are righteous will ascend the hill of the Lord in part by seeking the face of God he talks about here. So if we're gonna talk about righteousness today, let's, let's do it kind of with this perspective and in this way. I wanna kind of illustrate something and I wanna know before I do, is this a place of grace? Because I can't draw. Like I did really bad in, in art class, but, but you'll love me anyways, right? All 10 of you. Okay, so we're gonna call this a hill, right? And at this hill, we're going to say that at the peak of this, right up here, is righteousness. That we are on kind of this journey to righteousness. And we look at it there, and David says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may get closer to God in that way? And he talks about this journey, if you will, of righteousness. Now, let's understand this when you, when you think about this. If we're going to give it a little bit of perspective, let's do it this way that down here at the bottom, our focus in our lives is on self. Isn't that true? But what happens is at some point, we shift our focus from self, and we shift it up here to where it should be, and we focus on, anybody help me? (laughs) On God, right? So what happens, and what he's pointing out here, is that there is a journey that we go on in our lives where we move from self, and we move towards God. See, over here, if you had to describe it, probably a good way to say it is that over here, you're sinful. But at some point in your life, you recognize your sinfulness, and you recognize your need for God, and so, by the way, this is you. Not to scale. This is you, right? And at some point, you recognize your sinfulness and your need to look away from self, and to look to God, and when you do that, you start this journey, if you will, towards righteousness. And that's how this works in our lives. I guess if we, we had to give a definition to it, we would say, when I move away from sin and look to God, that is righteousness. Because say, God, I'm going to move away from my sin, and I'm going to start moving towards you. Something real important that you hear me say, I'm not saying that you're moving to becoming a god, You don't become a God, that's new age thinking, that's not biblical theology. So I don't have to say that again, right? But should you be moving closer to God? Absolutely, because that is the path to righteousness that the Bible talks about. So moving away from your sinful self and moving towards God puts you in a place where you move towards righteousness. And we should be doing this. We should be becoming more like Jesus in our lives. The Bible says this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and, help me with the last two words, (laughs) follow me. So he says, look, you move from where you are and you follow me to becoming the person that God would have you to be, to being more like Jesus, to living a life of, help me, (laughs) righteousness, right? As we look at this, 1 John 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. He's saying at some point, righteousness will put us in a place where we're moving away from our sinful self and we're moving towards God, we're looking at God, we're keeping our eyes on God to help us to become more righteous. So that's the idea of righteousness. One other thought about that that's really important. Like some of us think that there's gonna come a certain moment in our lives when we're gonna get right here, and we'll go, I have arrived. It's righteous me. And there's nothing else I have to do. Anybody got there yet? Anybody delusional in any other ways? Right, because you're never gonna get to that point. The reality is that at some point I recognize that I'm on a path towards righteousness, but I'm never gonna get there. I'm actually keeping my eye on God and becoming the person that he's called me to be. Now, that might be discouraging for some of you, because you might go, well, I actually actually just want to finish the task. I just want to put righteousness on my to-do list and then be able to check it off. But that's not the way it works. It is a constant process. We are always in the process of becoming more like Jesus. He's constantly working that out in our lives. And that's not a discouragement, that's an encouragement. Because you need to realize at some point how much greater God is than self, true? And at some point when I recognize this, that I'm becoming more like God, that he's working something out in my life, he's helping me to live my life more like Jesus, I recognize we are always in the process of becoming more like Jesus. And when I understand his greatness, I realize this is the place exactly where I want to be. Looking at him, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're looking to God, we're looking to Jesus, and becoming more like him and allowing his righteousness to grow in our lives. <clears throat> so if righteousness is when I look from my, away from my sinful self and start moving towards God, then I have to ask the question, What's over-righteousness? Like like when Solomon says this, do not be over-righteous, what's he talking about? Go back to the text. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? And I I really struggled with this. Like what does that even mean to be over-righteous? And as I thought about it, as I prayed about it, here was the thought that came to my mind. It is possible, I think, in our lives... For there to come a point where we begin to tell ourselves that we've got to that place of righteousness, and at some point, we get either comfortable, or we'll we'll talk about what that looks like here in just a moment, but it's possible for us to move past that point of righteousness, and that we can be, if you will, over-righteous, that we move past that point because here's what happens is at some point in my life, I can still feel good about myself because I feel like I'm moving away from sin, but I can take my eyes off of God and be looking at anybody? (laughs) I'm looking back at myself again at that point when I start to be, if you will, over-righteous. When I move away from God and look to self, that is over-righteousness. When I get to that certain point, and I'm feeling good about myself because I feel like I'm moving away from sin in my life, but the reality is that when I'm in that moment, I'm moving away from God and moving closer to self, and that means that I've become over-righteous. So understand this. this. This is critical to think about. In our lives, when you get up here to this point, when you're working towards righteousness in your life, there is a gravity of self that's going to try to pull you back down. Anybody found that to be true? That as I'm moving closer to God, myself, there's this gravity that keeps pulling me back down. And on this side of the drawing, it's this sinful self, but there's this other side that if you start getting pulled over to this side, instead of calling it sinful, let's call this side prideful. Does that make sense? Anybody? (laughs) Like over here, when I think about it, it's, it's this it's this carnal part of me. But over here, what happens? When I move past where I'm in this place and I stop looking at God and I start looking at myself again, it's not so much an issue that's sinful and carnal, but I become prideful and if you will, I become hypocritical as well in my faith. Does this remind you of anybody? You shouldn't have said that. (laughs) You shouldn't have said that but because the gravity of self is always going to pull you back down and you know what direction it's going to pull you whatever direction you're looking whatever direction you're facing whatever direction you're looking in the gravity of yourself is going to pull you either towards a sinful carnal self or towards a prideful hypocritical self and these are things we need to very much be aware of or let's say it this way remember this passage 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That's a cool verse, isn't it? Let me, let me illustrate it for you, because here's what he says. He says, when you're over here, that's, that's the old me, right? And then when God does a work in my life, when I surrender my life to Christ, when I start moving towards righteousness, that up here... That's the new me. That's a beautiful transformation, isn't it? But let me warn you, what happens is at some point if you're not careful, you can get up on the other side of this and you can move towards over-righteousness and you go from old me to new me to then your main concern over here is all me. Like that's what I'm focused on, that my life is all about me. And so the point is we have to understand that if we're not careful in our lives, if we take our focus off of God, and we start looking at self, it will lead us to a point where we can become, if we're not careful, over righteous. Now before we go any further, let me just ask you a question. This all depends on where you're looking. If you're looking to God, then you'll move in that direction. But when you start looking to self, the gravity of self is going to pull you back down either in a sinful, carnal, old me direction or in a prideful, hypocritical, all me direction. My question for you is, where are you at on that drawing? Like, like this week, if I asked you to come up here and like mark on that paper, in fact, let's, let's do that. Let's make a line. We're going to have you all come up here and just real quick, just put your initials. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. But if I did ask you to, if I asked you to go, where where am I on this drawing? Where would you be? And I think the key is what what direction are you looking in? Because the direction you're looking in will determine the direction you will go. In fact, go back to the text. Solomon says this next in verse 17. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 17. He says, do not be over wicked and do not be a fool why die before your time? Isn't that an interesting phrase? Do not be over wicked. Apparently it's good to be a little wicked, right? Is that what he means? No, 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 that's not what he means. What he means is this, recognize that you and I, that all of us have this this sinful, carnal old me in us and if we're not careful, we'll get pulled in that direction by the gravity of self, true? So he says look out for that in your life. Then he says this, verse 18, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 18, he says, It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. He says it's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. I heard a a political commentator talking about some of the candidates for for next year's presidential election and as as he was describing them, he said about one of them, they have a firm grasp on half a point. I thought that was an interesting way to say. They think they're right here, but they're missing out over there. And that's exactly what Solomon says. He says, look, it's good for you to grab hold of the one and not let go of the other. To realize that if you're not careful, you can be overly wicked or you can become overly righteous, he says the answer, if you're gonna navigate this, is not to look at self, but the answer is to look at? He says fear God, keep your eyes on God, look at God, because then when the gravity of self is pulling you down, you're focused in a direction towards God, and the direction you will go is the direction that you're looking at. The reality is, where you look is where you will go. So the question is, are you looking at self? or are you looking at God? Does this make sense at all? Because I have to be careful about this in my life, because I can get to a point where I feel like I'm moving really good, and I'm moving away from sin, but if I stop looking at God, and I start looking at self, it's going to take me in a downhill, dangerous direction. So the question then is, Chad, how do I know? How do I know if I'm starting to move down this kind of overrighteous part of the curve and moving down this way. Let me give you today kind of symptoms of overrighteousness, if you will. Like what are some ways that we might be able to look at our own lives and see are there some places where I've taken my eyes off of God and I'm looking to self? And what devastating effects that can have if I'm not careful. Some symptoms of overrighteousness. As we do it, I want to put them in three different categories for us today, and then we'll kind of look at them as we go. The first category is this: number one, overrighteousness and others. Overrighteousness and others. The truth is that if you allow yourself to kind of start moving in this direction, it's going to change the way that you look at other people. It's going to affect that. Let me let me give you an example. When I'm, when I'm kind of in a place where it's the old me and I start looking at things that I don't like in other people's lives, what happens is <clears throat> it'll begin to generate some hate in my life, won't it? I'll look at them. If they're different from me, if there's things I don't like about them, it'll generate that hate. What's unique, though, is that as I'm moving towards God and moving towards righteousness, the new me becomes more motivated by love than hate. Isn't that true? But here's What's interesting? Once I cross the other side of this, once I become overrighteous, what used to be hate that had been turned into love, when I get over here, I have to be careful because what will happen is it'll start to be criticism. So when I start to replace love for criticism, then I might be overrighteous. If criticism is replacing love, you might be overrighteous. If instead of seeing people through the lens of love, if instead you're starting to judge them based on your own judgment, then maybe I need to be careful and go, have I I gone over this side here? Have I become over-righteous? Here's the interesting part. You know where it usually starts? That criticism usually starts with the people closest to you and behind closed doors. usually doesn't show up out in the public first, that critical spirit where there's people in your life that you're supposed to be giving unconditional love to, and instead you're replacing that with a selfish, critical nature, it usually happens with the people you're closest to, and it usually starts behind closed doors. Let me give you a biblical example of this. There's a story in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells. We we refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son. It's about a guy who had two sons. And the the older son kind of managed the family farm. And the younger son said, I want to live kind of a more fun life than that. So he cashed out his inheritance early, and he went to the big city, and he lived his life up to the hilt, and then he ran out of money, and then everything started circling the drain. And we get to a point in the story where he's literally in in a devastating place of poverty, and he says, what am I doing? I can at least go back home and work the farm. And so he goes back home, and when his loving father sees him, he welcomes him back as a son, throws this massive party, except that as everybody's partying, it really affects the older brother, the one who stayed at the farm. And look at what we read, verse 28 of Luke 15. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, do you notice the language you used here? Not when my beloved brother, but when this son of yours, you ever use that with your spouse? They're your kids, right? You know what I'm talking about? But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him. Like, can you hear it in his heart? His long lost brother, who they thought was dead, has now come home. And instead of seeing that through a lens of love, he's seeing that through a lens of self, which has led him to a place of, anybody? Criticism and comparison, which are things, if you're not careful, will bring devastation to your life. The reality is, in in, in my thinking, that older brother had gone over-righteous. See, here's how it works The hypocrite is more worried about position than direction. The hypocrite is more worried about position than direction. Let let me give you an example. If you've got somebody who's looking at self, but they're up here, you know, they're headed in this direction, but they're up here, they're right here, they have a tendency to go, well, look, I'm higher than that person. Like, I have this position over that other person. But the reality is, this isn't a very good picture because you're judging this person based on their position but you're heading in the wrong direction and they're heading in the, anybody? (laughs) The right one. And so the hypocrite has a tendency to look at position over direction and miss out on actually what God is trying to do in somebody's life and that's a dangerous place to be because when you start having those thoughts, it points out right away that you're looking at other people and looking at self instead of looking to help me. (laughs) God, right? And so there's this challenge that comes. See, the hypocrite is concerned with where you are and not who you are. More concerned about where you show up on here instead of who you are becoming as God is at work in your life. And so that's why Solomon says, look, be careful that you don't become over-righteous. Because if you're not, that love that God put in your heart will be replaced with criticism. Here's, here's another maybe little gauge to consider. If condemnation is replacing grace, you might be overrighteous. If you find that your spirit, as you interact with other people, is filled more with condemnation than it's filled with grace, you might be overrighteous. Do you, do you remember where your righteousness comes from? Titus chapter three, verse five tells us you are righteous because of all the awesome things you did, right? No, you're righteous because of God's mercy because of God's grace. And so many times, this is where it gets tricky, this is where people get blamed for being hypocritical, or there's a biblical, have you ever heard the, the biblical term the Pharisee? Like somebody who judges somebody in one way but isn't willing to judge them their own selves? Look, if condemnation is replacing grace in your life, then maybe you're overrighteous. The best way to look at righteousness is with a mirror and not a window. Let me show you what I mean by that. Like I could look at this whole picture and I could look at it through a window and look out at you and go, (laughs) I know exactly where she fits on there. Right, I can look out at you and I can judge you. And the reality is that's more fun, isn't it? It's easier to do that. But it's devastating. When I consider this the healthy way, the right way to look at this is not through a window but to look at it through a, anybody? (laughs) Through a mirror. So I can take a good look at myself and see where I land in this place. This is the reality. I have to ask myself, is rationalization replacing my repentance? Is rationalization replacing your repentance? That when you look at your sin, you go, "Well, yeah, this is the reason why I did that, but when you look at somebody else's challenges, you're quick to point a finger and go, I don't know what's wrong with them. Is accusation replacing your conviction? That instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, You're quick to point a finger at others. When Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he he said it this way Matthew chapter 23, verse 25 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You know who Jesus is talking to there? The overrighteous. And it's a good gauge for us. And I really have to think about this. Like when I see something in somebody else's life, what comes out of me most quickly? Is it grace or is it condemnation? Am I quick to cast blame and accusations on others while making excuses for myself? Because at that point then, it makes it pretty clear I'm no longer looking at God. I'm back to looking at myself. The reality is we live in a culture where we're quick to throw blame on other people. We're we're quick to hold back on grace, and we need to be mindful of that. A good example of that is there's a mom of five kids in in Charlotte, Michigan right now who's waiting to see how this is all going to work out because she has been charged with a crime. She's facing up to 93 days in jail, $500 fine, but all of this is because she had two library books that she failed to take back, and she's had them for two years, and she was up for a promotion at work and her boss called her and said, hey, look, I, you need to know there's a warrant out for your arrest because you, you, you stole rented property. So it's probably going to cost her the promotion. She, I don't know if she'll go to jail or not. I don't know if she'll have to pay the fine. I'm not sure it's all going to work out. I suppose it depends on whether or not they throw the book at her. <laughs> you know that's funny, right? That's funny. That's funny but it's not filled with grace. Aren't there times when we gotta look at what's, it's a true story actually, but like, you gotta look at things in other people's lives and just go, how, how do I respond to this? Is my response with condemnation, is it with grace? Is it with love or is it with criticism? Because that's a good gauge for me to know when I look at others, am I being overrighteous? Let's take it to a second category, not just this idea of over-righteousness and others, let's talk about over-righteousness and God. Because when you get to this point where you're overrighteous and you start looking at self more than you're looking at God, it's gonna affect your relationship with God as well. It, it affects the whole thing in your spiritual life. If delusion is replacing discernment, you might be over-righteous. If delusion is replacing discernment, then you might be over-righteous. What do you mean by that, Chad? Well, if you're making decisions in your life based on what you think, instead of listening to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, instead of seeking what God and his word might say to you, then maybe, even if those are spiritual decisions, you may be at a point where you've gone this way and you have gone over-righteous in your life. If you find yourself in in a point when you're spending less time listening to what the Holy Spirit might say to you and more time telling God what you're going to do, then maybe you're overrighteous. What happens in those moments, too, is you start thinking, well, this is what I'm gonna do. You miss the Holy Spirit's leading, and you start being passive where you should be active, and you start being active where you should be passive, and you miss out on what God's trying to do in your life. And oftentimes it's because, because you want a spiritual experience, or because you want to do something, or you want to stir something up, but as a result, you're driven more by self than you are by God, and it puts you in this place that you become very prideful, and it's all me, and you can become overrighteous. Let me give you an example from scripture. There's a story in Luke chapter nine, it's called the Transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus goes up on a mountain to, to pray and he's up there with Peter and James and John and while he's up there, it, it says that the, the fellows get real sleepy. Peter and James and John are getting sleepy. And then all of a sudden, Jesus like lights up, like, like his glory is revealed as God. And it says that there's this bright light that happens in that moment and appears with him Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament. And that, that's an interesting story. We can go back and look at it theologically. Like, why those two guys? But it's interesting. So Moses and Elijah show up, and they talk with Jesus about the, the path that he's on to bring salvation to you and me. And it's this incredible, glorious moment that happens. And these three guys that are with Jesus, who previous were sleepy, do you think they're wide awake now? Absolutely they are. And when all this is wrapping up, here's what happens. Verse 33 of Luke chapter 9. As the men were leaving Jesus... Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. Like he was trying to put put up little plaques, commemorate stuff. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Parenthetical statement. He did not know what he was saying. I wonder how many times God's been up in heaven. He looked down at me and he went, "Ah, Chad, he does not know what he's doing. (laughs) You ever been there? Sometimes in my zeal, sometimes in my, my pride, sometimes in my desire driven by self to do things, even good spiritual things, I'll move in a direction that I think is right because I want to do it and I've never once looked at God and asked him what he wants. I've never said, God, what is it that you want in my life? And that's a dangerous place because that can move you to a point where you start to get over righteous. When you're engaging in spiritual activity without discerning whether or not that's the direction God has for you, you might be in a place where you're over righteous. Those are times to pray for discernment with your decisions. It's time to pray for discernment when your decisions have become based on personal faith and not on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And say, God, will you lead me in this? Not looking to self, but looking to you. This, this takes on a whole nother step when you think that sometimes if pride is replacing patience in your life, you might be overrighteous. If pride is replacing patience, you might be overrighteous. If you're, if you're trying to rush God, and deny the process of what he's trying to do, if you're getting impatient with your life in this moment, if if you're looking more to your selfish desires than you are to what God would have, then there's a good chance that maybe you're overrighteous. Here's what scripture tells us. We we spent quite some time on this a couple weeks ago. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God sees it all. He knows what he's doing. And there's times when I'm in a point of time, but he has the the whole point of view. He knows exactly what he's doing, but I can get frustrated in that place, in that moment. And when my personal pride moves me past patience, there's a good chance that maybe I've become overrighteous. Because sometimes we wanna just take things into our own hands and do the things that we wanna do. There's a, there's a pilot who works for an airline in Siberia who got busted recently because he decided to give his girlfriend flying lessons. He did it in a passenger airline with passengers in it while she was there and then he held her phone so that she could post it to Instagram the stuff of her flying. Not a good idea, right? not very wise, but I know what he was thinking. Like in that moment, he did that because he was totally driven by self. He wasn't paying any attention to the authority that was over him in his life. And he thought in this moment, I'm gonna do what I want without any regard for is that even the right thing? And we do that in our lives. Sometimes we try to push something through. We try to make something happen. We get, we get frustrated. We get disappointed. And the reality is that if I take my eyes off of God and I'm frustrated, I'm going to look in some other direction and the gravity of self is going to pull me in that direction. Like the reality is sometimes there's things, there's seasons in our lives where we start to get fearful or we start to think there's never gonna be an answer and we stop looking at God and we start looking back at the old man and if we're not careful, the gravity of self's gonna pull us down this way. True or false? True, True, right? And the same thing's over here that if I think, well, I've got the answers, I'm gonna make it happen. If I take my eyes off of God, it'll start pulling me very pridefully down to something that's all me and not God. So what do I do in those moments? Ecclesiastes chapter 11, I love this passage from Solomon. He says, whoever watches the wind will not plant and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. He says, look, if you're just fearful about everything that's happening around you, then you're driven by self, nothing's ever going to get done. Verse 5, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb... So you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Do you see the contrast here? He says, at some point, you've got to choose. Am I focused on self, or do I believe that maybe God's at work? And if I'm going to focus on God, what does that mean? Verse 6, so sow your seed in the morning, and in the evening, let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. And he says, look, even in the moments when you're scared of the unknown, you put your trust and your confidence in God and believe that as you do your part, God will do his part as you entrust the process to him. Look, and I think this is really important because there are some of you that maybe there's a frustration between you and God right now because you feel like things aren't going the way that you want them to go or they're not how you would like them to be. And the temptation in that is to take your eyes off of God and to put it back on self. And I'm gonna tell you that when you do that, you're gonna head in one of two directions and they're both devastating, true? The whole point of this, if you get nothing else, is I'm asking you a question, where are you looking? Are you looking at self? Are you looking at God? Because that makes all the difference. Last one, third, third category. We've talked about overrighteousness in others, overrighteousness in God. Here's the last one. Let's talk about overrighteousness in you. What happens if you allow yourself to get to a point where you stop looking at God and start looking at self and you move toward overrighteousness? Well, if ownership is replacing stewardship, you might be overrighteous. If ownership is replacing stewardship in your life, you might be overrighteous. If you say a lot about the things in your life, "Well, that's that's mine. That's that's my job. That's my ministry. That's my family. That's my stuff. That's my money." If you're holding on to it too tightly and you keep saying that this is mine and I own it instead of saying, "God, this is yours and I thank you for it," then maybe you're at a place where you're overrighteous. Because when I start looking at self, then I start thinking that everything I have belongs to me when actually it's from God. So it's not my ministry, and it's not my family, and it's not my money, and it's not my influence. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father above James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us this it comes from him and if i think i own it i'm only fooling myself because it actually belongs to him look at this ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 18 wisdom from solomon again this is what i have observed to be good that it is appropriate for a person to eat to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life god has given them for this is their lot He has a way with words, doesn't he? You're going to have a few measly days. You might as well enjoy them. (laughs) Except that's not really exactly what he's saying. He's saying, look, enjoy what you have, verse 19. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Here's what he's saying. You will be happier. You will be more productive. You will have more blessing in your life. If at some point you realize the things that you have did not come from But they actually came from, this is so true that if at some point I'll recognize, God, everything I have comes from you. Lord, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Ultimately, it was your strength. It was your health. It was what you've given to me. That's why I have what I have. So I'm not an owner of these things. I'm a steward of these things. So as a parent, when I start looking at my children as a gift that God has entrusted to me, that's the beauty of the dedication that we walk through today. It's a gift that God has entrusted to me, and God, I'm gonna do my best to be a steward of that gift. When I recognize that my job and my influence, that my ministry, that the money that I have is not ultimately mine, that it ultimately belongs to God, that changes the whole perspective. And then there's this, and maybe this is what it all kind of finally comes down to. If ego is replacing identity, you might be overrighteous. If your ego is replacing your identity, you might be overrighteous. Like, how, how do you even look at your own life? Do you look at it through the lens of God or through the lens of self? It's a dangerous place to be when you view your value through the perception of others and not your identity in Christ. Ultimately, I'm a child of God, and that changes everything. But at some point, if I'm I'm caught looking at myself, at some point, if I'm spending my time looking at other people, then I've taken my eyes off of God, and I'm missing out on so much that he wants to do in my life, and that makes it a dangerous place to be. There are times when I just have to remind myself, I'm a child of God, and where this really comes into play is if I'm more driven by my ego and self than I am my identity in God, it will affect every aspect in my life, because at some point then in my relationship with you, I can't be wrong. At some point then in my interaction with you, I will refuse to lose Because my ego is driven, I'm looking so much at myself that it's gonna affect my marriage, it's gonna affect my family relationships, it's gonna affect me in the workplace. I'm wrong when I have to be right, and I lose when I have to win. Like, if I'm in a situation where I just go, I have to be right, and I'm not talking about matters of, of truth, I'm not talking about matters of doctrine, but I'm talking about those in, internal interactions, those, those, those relationships that you and I have, if I find myself in a place where I'm not willing to be humble, where I'm not willing to give grace, where I'm not willing to show love instead of criticism, in those places when I say, I have to be right and I will not lose, that means I'm driven more by self than I am looking to God. True? That was a quiet one. Here's a question I gotta ask. If ego is replacing identity, then I might be overrighteous. Why does that happen? Because I've forgotten who I am. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. When was the last time that when you started rewinding the DVR in your head? Because you all have one, right? That at some point you, you, you go through something and then you rewind the scene and you play it back again. And you, you rewind and you think of those words that people said or those places where you didn't do something right or those things you were thinking about yourself and you keep pushing the rewind button and you keep watching those same scenes over and over again in your head that tell you that there's not a whole lot to yourself. When was the last time that, that happened that you said to yourself, I'm going to stop watching this because I'm actually a child of God. That my identity is that I am a daughter or I am a son of God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, my identity is no longer here. It's here. That's why when I take my eyes off of here, I start being drawn back here real quick. But what happens in my life is that when I look at God, it changes everything Romans chapter 12, verse one, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why talk about all of this? I couldn't shake that word. And I think maybe in part because of what Solomon says about it, because the reality is it could be real easy for you to just kind of look at that and go, well, that's an interesting thought, and Gilligan can't draw. Like that could be all you get out of today. And you walk away and go, yeah, that's it. But there's so much more to this. Like, like you, you can't look at this thought and at the end of the day not go, it does not matter. Like what we've talked about today, you have to ask yourself the question, where am I here? Am I looking more to self than I'm looking to God? Is gravity pulling me more towards the old me or towards all me than it is towards the new me that God wants me to be in him? Why does it matter? Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 16. Solomon, wisest person who ever lived, said, do not be over-righteous and neither be over-wise. Why? destroy yourself. Because in those moments, you're gonna put yourself on some kind of a trajectory when you start going in the wrong direction where you're gonna find yourself in a place of personal destruction. Psalm 25 verse 15 gives us the antidote. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Or I like the way that the message version says it. If I keep my eyes on God... I won't trip over my own feet. That's good, isn't it? If I keep my eyes on God, I won't trip over my own feet. It might be easy for you to say, that's cool, but I don't know that it matters. And those are the places in our lives where we're quick to kind of just dismiss and say, I don't know that it matters. Those are the places where we can be quick to let something in that will destroy us. The scientific community celebrated in 1977 because they were pretty sure that they had eradicated the smallpox virus. They had dealt with the last case and was not showing up anywhere else in the world. Vaccinations had made a world of difference. And they said, we think we've done it. Smallpox is gone. And then 10 months later in 1978, a 40-year-old woman in the United Kingdom, Birmingham, England, of all places, started showing these these red dots, 40-year-old Janet Parker. Her her doctor said, you know, I think think it's just chicken pox, but you're, you're gonna be okay. And then it got worse. And then it got worse. And eventually they put her in isolation. And as they studied, they told her, Janet, you you not only have smallpox, you have the worst, most serious type of smallpox. And they tried treating her, and they tried doing all these different things. And nothing would resolve it. She just kept getting worse and worse and worse until finally 40-year-old Janet Parker died, the last victim of the smallpox virus. Yes, how does that happen in all places, Birmingham, England? What's interesting is there was a laboratory in that same hospital, one of the few places at that time that the World Health Organization had allowed there to be some research on live smallpox viruses. And there was a doctor who ran a lab there, and they actually gave him permission to do that with a little bit of hesitation. They said, look, you can work here, but you've got to take your lab up to higher standards. You're not working in a way that's safe to handle this equipment and this material and these viruses. He said, okay, okay, I will, but he didn't keep his promise. And lately, later, they came in and they checked it again. And they were like, doctor, you've, you've not done what you said you were going to do. And he said, look, here's the deal. I'm almost done with my research. If I have to bring all this up to standards, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. Can I just finish this up? It's no harm, no foul. We're okay. It's going to be all right. And they let him go because he kept looking at certain things and saying, you know, it's really not that important. Nobody in his lab got smallpox because... They had all been vaccinated within four to five years, but poor Janet Parker, she had been vaccinated 12 years before, so hers had worn off, and her office was one floor above this lab. And all they can figure is that somehow the smallpox virus worked its way out of that lab and up through the air ducts and into Janet's life, and it took her life all because somebody said, you know, I don't really know if it matters. Solomon said, don't be over-righteous and destroy yourself. You know why? Because whether you're looking at self or you're looking at God, it really matters. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And I I don't know how you came in here today. I don't know if you walked in here saying, man, things are good between me and God. Or if you walked in here saying, you know, things things, things aren't right between me and God. You may even have walked in here today wondering if there even is a God. And yet in this moment, the Holy Spirit is speaking something to your heart and saying to you, it's time to take your eyes off of self and put them onto me. It's time for you to put your trust and your confidence in me and to stop looking at self and start looking at God so that you can allow him to give direction and purpose and meaning in your life. It's probably a good chance that in these last few moments, maybe the Holy Spirit just kind of put a spotlight on some things in your relationships, in your life, whether that be with others or with God or just some things deep in yourself. And in this moment, God's stirring something inside of you and saying, stop looking at yourself and start looking to me. Stop looking for the answers in who you are and start finding them in who I am. Stop being driven by your own ego and start relying on your identity in Jesus Christ. And as I close this out with this word of prayer, whether you're in, in this room, you're in auditorium too, you're watching this on a screen somewhere, would you let the Holy Spirit speak to you? And would you make a decision today to say, I'm, 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 I'm going to stop looking at myself and I'm going to shift my attention and look to God. Father, thanks for your word. That when we open up your word, when we let it speak to our hearts, it shows us who we are. And God, it also shows us who you have created us to be. And Lord, I pray for the one today who says, I need to stop looking to myself in this area of my life and God, start looking to you. Start putting my trust in you. Start putting my confidence in you. In our relationship with others, God, would you give us love and grace instead of criticism and condemnation? God, in our relationship with you, would we listen to be led of the Holy Spirit and trust the process that you're working in our lives? Father in our, in, our, in our own selves would we find our identity in you in such a way that we would realize that we live our lives as stewards of what you've entrusted to us looking to you every step along the way God thanks for your word how it speaks to us Lord help our hearts to be drawn and, 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 and attached to you may we look to you today we pray and Lord as we do this we put our confidence in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Go in his special favor and his wonderful peace. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.